Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. I love to surf, but I rarely surf competitively. Competition makes me super anxious. It's all those people watching and the people cheering, and it adds this pressure I just don't like. And my brain starts going, what would they think of me? What if I fall off this wave, make a fool of myself, let everyone down? But when I surf just for myself, just for the joy of it, well, that's different. And sometimes I can get completely immersed in it. All that self-consciousness falls away, as well as all of my daily worries, and I'm focused solely on the wave. And I don't seem to tire, like everything seems to be effortless. And time slows down. And after a surf like this, I feel centered and energized and ready to face the world again. Now my Harumai Kito Tato Au Hurihuri. Kuklerken Kalantenei. On this week's Ever Changing World, two stories about sporting performance and psychology. Later, I speak to skydiver, rock climber and University of Otago PhD student Patrick Boudreau about the psychology behind being in the zone when doing adventure sports. But first, the Tokyo Olympics are strange in many, many ways. But one of the strangest, surely, is the lack of crowds. It is so odd to see empty stands, stadiums and swimming pools. How different it must be for these athletes, who, presumably, unlike me in surfing, thrive under this pressure, or at least have figured out how to deal with it. Katie Gossett brings us a story about University of Canterbury Research, which has looked at the home game or home ground advantage, including the role that crowds have to play. Saturday sport is a bit of a thing in New Zealand, a rite of passage for so many children. Today I'm watching the Ferrymead Bay's Phoenix under-12 soccer team. They're playing against Horswell in Christchurch, and as you'd expect, their parents have turned out to cheer them on. And we generally assume that that helps kids to perform. I like the cheers. I like people supporting me. It's encouraging. Yeah, they it, encourage you. it's nice to have people that you know. I think it's better when you play with your friends and family because there's more supporters, so you feel like you can do better. When you miss the goal or when you muck up a pass, there are still people cheering for you, so like you don't feel like you made a really big mistake. They'll say, like, oh, you'll get it next time, and like encourage you and stuff like that. 
today, as well as a good gathering of family and friends, the team has another possible advantage. Although they play on different pitches each week, today they're at Barnet Park in Redcliffs, their home field. This is where they train once a week. So is this an ace up their sleeve when it comes to winning or losing? The man to ask is Dr Brad Miles from the University of Canterbury's School of Health Sciences. He's been studying the concept known as the home game advantage. Basically it's a performance advantage that accrues to teams when they play on their home ground as opposed to when they travel away. And so it can manifest in a number of ways in terms of outright win percentages. Or you can also have a home advantage when a team loses. So if a team loses on average when they play away by 20 points, but they only lose when they play at home by 10 points, there's still some advantage they get by playing at home. So we all get the idea at an anecdotal level, but do the results actually back the theory up? Absolutely. So it's a pretty, what we call, a robust phenomenon. So it's been demonstrated across a number of different sports, from you know, international high-level elite performance down to lower, more amateur kind of levels. And it's been demonstrated across a long periods of time. And so when you look at the, some of the statistics and, and analyse some of the, the results and outcomes and data, uh, it's a pretty strong phenomenon. And Brad's seen it in the results of some of our biggest teams. So for the Crusaders, they typically win about 60% of their games when they play away but 80% of their games when they play at home. So even a consistently good team like the Crusaders uh, have a performance advantage when playing at home. And the same applies to something like the All Blacks. So the All Blacks, over a long period of time, are an incredibly successful sports team, but even they have an advantage. They win more games playing at home than they do playing away. Push up, girls! Back home! Push up! Push up! In fact, it's something most sports people have experienced. Go, your girl! On the sideline at Barnet Park today, calling encouragement to the girls, is their coach, Mackenzie Haberfield. So I've played football since I was 12. I currently play in the Women's Premier League for Ferrymead Bays, and I've played for Canterbury in the wider squad as well. So what is your experience of the home game advantage? I think definitely playing at home always has an advantage. You know, you've always got a lot more supporters at home. Yeah, it just adds a bit more enthusiasm and support to the game. I guess myself, from personal experience, I think it makes me play a lot better. OK, Blue, take it up. Nice. Good shot. Brad Miles explains that the home game advantage can play out, if you'll excuse the term, in a few different ways. One is the obvious practical stuff things like travel. So when you travel internationally, it can be accompanied by jet lag and disruptions of routines and kind of fatigue. It might be due to uh, local playing factors. So if you are based in an area where it's typically hot and dry and you travel to somewhere where it's snowy and cold, you know, maybe that affects performance. And at a grassroots level, the girls find that too. It is an advantage because you've practised there and you know what the fields are like and everything. And it's also kind of close to home. It's easier for your family to get here so then you can have more friends and family. Because as we've already heard, having support on the sidelines is another thing that can improve performance. When you do something in front of an audience, you know, whether it be playing the piano or making a public speech or kicking the winning goal at a World Cup rugby final, the crowd can have an impact. And typically for high-level sports performers, they rise to the occasion. So the crowd creates extra stimulation and it actually improves their performance. Although not always. From time to time, that crowd support can actually be perceived as pressure and can create uh, performance detriments rather than improvements. And that's something even the under-12s have felt. It kind of depends who the people are. So if it's like somebody from school or something, then it can be a bit more pressure because like, you don't want to muck up in front of someone from school. 
or you just want to ambush them. But on the whole, the cheering is seen as a good thing. And so if you are used to it, what happens when all that crowd noise and support and feedback is suddenly just gone? It's depressing. It's depressing because you're like, oh, should I go up to that ball? But when someone encourages you to go, you go, oh, yeah, I'll just go up to that. Sometimes it can be hard. If somebody said they might come and then they don't turn up, you're like, you're distracted because you're looking around to see if anyone's there. And it can be just as tough at a premier level. If we concede a goal or our heads are down, it can be a bit harder to try and give yourself a bit of second wind or increase your enthusiasm again. Meanwhile, if you've got all these people cheering you on, there's nothing more motivating than hearing people screaming on the sideline for you and trying to keep you in the game. But some teams have had to do without that during this period of COVID concern. Playing without a crowd, particularly if you're used to playing with a crowd, often reduces the excitement and the general atmosphere of the occasion. I mean, certainly from a spectator's point of view, you know, having a loud, noisy crowd contributes to the excitement and the sense of occasion. And that's partly why some sports have chosen to broadcast uh, crowd noises over top of the coverage of sports. Even though the stadium's empty, they have this artificial kind of crowd to you know, help increase the sense of occasion. If we're looking at something like the home advantage, taking the crowd out should, in theory, make a more equal playing field. One group of athletes who have known in advance not to expect any familiar faces on the sidelines are the ones currently competing at the Tokyo Olympics. A spike in coronavirus infections has meant that no spectators are allowed at any venues in the city. Although Brad Miles admits the Olympics are a bit different from conventional sport and athletes are used to competing without much home support. It's not like the New Zealand rowing team goes to Japan and has a race there and everyone comes to New Zealand and has a race. So for most of the teams, they're playing away at the Olympics uh, anyway. For home athletes, it's been suggested that there can be a bit of an advantage. So if you look at something like London 2012, the Great British Olympic team did very well, better than expected. Um, and so home advantage is one potential explanation of that. But he believes the absence of any kind of crowd noise must be a challenge for the athletes. Obviously it's the highlight of many athletes' career and part of that is the spectacle. So the big crowd adds to the occasion, adds to the drama and the excitement of the event. Taking that away does detract a little bit from the occasion, but still, again, it's the height of many people's careers, so I'm sure they'll be up for that in terms of their performance. But crowds, or a lack of them, don't just affect sports people themselves. There is another way that a home game advantage can show itself, and this is a particular focus of Brad Mull's research. One of the more powerful explanations comes from the impact a crowd can have on not just the players, but the match officials and, and referees. And that's particularly the case for sports where match officials have a lot of discretion in their decision-making, where there are really you know, ambiguity or some grey areas uh, in, in the decisions that they make. And the idea is that the crowd might sway the performance of match officials through processes of psychological conformity. So in other words, you've got a big crowd going foul, foul, and then the umpire was like, mm, OK, should I go along with this? There's a couple of ways in which we think conformity occurs. One is when people really don't know 
the true answer or the true decision to make, and they might be persuaded by information that other people are being provided. Uh, another way that, that conformity might occur is that people often want to go along with the group. It's difficult to stand out or kind of appear a deviant. And so if you've got 50 or 60,000 people kind of howling, that creates a lot of social pressure. And so on some of those ambiguous kind of calls, 50-50 calls, there may be a psychological kind of process whereby umpires probably subconsciously alter their decision-making to align with that 50,000 people screaming for a foul or a penalty or, or a forward pass. And while it may be subtle and subconscious, Brad Miles says it can have an impact. Over the course of a match or a season or a decade of sports, you know, having a little bit of, of sway, just here and there on those 50-50 ambiguous calls, which typically, on average, you know, one or two times they might sway towards the home team, but it can make a difference in the long run. Yeah, and people are only human after all. Umpires, match officials, like the rest of us, are human. And so they're subject to the same kind of psychological quirks and behaviours that we're all subject to. Uh, and conformity is a pretty powerful one, both in everyday life and in on sports field as well. Push up, push up, GD! Well done! Mackenzie Haberfield believes she's seen this phenomenon in action herself. I think that if the ref is experienced, then I haven't come across many issues, but I definitely have found that refs that are new to the game do get easily persuaded by other players, parents, the crowd and everything as well. So, yeah, I definitely agree with that one. <laughs> so what do you do about that? Brad Miles is researching ways to combat the issue. So at the moment I'm looking at what happens with the introduction of some technology into sports umpiring and, and officiating, and third umpires and match reviews and television, match officials and so forth, that some of that impact that umpires have on the field might be taken away and so that would reduce the magnitude of, of any home advantage. And the good news is that if you're part of a team playing away, there are also things you can do to level the playing field. Ensuring good efficient travel, ensuring rest and their preparation uh, is correct. In terms of actually influencing uh, the crowd, you often hear commentators uh, say things like if they perform well early on, uh, they tend to silence the crowd, uh, which generates less noise and pressure from a player's point of view and an umpire's point of view. When you go to see any kind of sporting performance, do you contribute to the crowd noise? I'm typically fairly reserved in my personality, but certainly if there's some exciting stuff happening on the field, um, it, it's hard not to kind of get involved. And so singing and clapping, cheering, you know, jumping up and down on your feet, um, that, that can be part of it. I don't do it to influence events on the field, um, but it's just part of the joys of being a sports fan. There's nothing strategic about it. In the end, the major driver of success is still the talent of the players, and Brad Miles says, for the most part, the best team wins. Three cheers for Hallsworth! Hit Bray! Hit Bray! Hit Bray! But it's worth remembering that whether we're being strategic or not, spectators play an important role in supporting any athlete who's brave enough to enter the arena. Thanks, Katie. That was Katie Gossett speaking with the Ferrymead Bay Phoenix under-12 soccer team, their coach Mackenzie Haberfield and University of Canterbury Health Sciences lecturer Brad Miles. Now, while many athletes are driven by medals, competition and that roar of the crowd, there are others who do different sporting activities just for the joy of it. In the world of adventure sports such as rock climbing, big wave surfing or base jumping, 
it is sometimes difficult to see from the outside looking in why people would put themselves into these dangerous life-or-death situations. What do they get from the experience? And how do they get into the right frame of mind so that they can commit and do that move that might otherwise be fatal? Patrick Boudreaux from Canada has been asking these questions as part of his PhD studying optimal psychology states in adventure sports. I caught up with him at Resistance Climbing Gym in Dunedin, where first he explains how he got into this research area. So I did my master's degree looking at self-confidence of the high school students that I was working with. And during that time, I was also starting to skydive myself. And I often had people telling me that I was either an adrenaline junkie. I was only doing it because of that adrenaline rush or excitement, or I had a death wish, or I was crazy, or something like that. And it didn't really coincide with what I was feeling. I, I felt like I was doing it for different reasons, and, and one of the the reasons that really resonated with me was that being in the moment, almost like an active type of meditation where I was not concentrated on anything else, I was just focused on what I was doing. And when I was doing my master's, I found a lot of research on personality traits and finding out that actually they're not necessarily more crazy. We call that necessarily not more neurotic. They don't have um, less cap capacity to be emotional stable. They, may actually be the reverse and might be more emotionally stable than the average population. And after doing all that personality trait research, it still wasn't really getting at what the reason was for me to be doing it. And I stumbled on a concept called flow. Flow theory or flow states, it's all about being in the moment and being present. And I find that looking at those descriptions of flow, I, that was the, the spark that ignited, oh, this is what I need to be researching. This is what I need to find out more because this is what's inspiring me to continue skydiving. As you can hear, it's pretty busy in the bouldering gym. And so there are plenty of people climbing the walls. Some with calm faces, but some with faces of intense concentration. And I asked Patrick, is it likely that these people are experiencing flow? It's very possible, so especially if you're looking at the people that have those big smiles on that look really motivated, energized after they've done their climb, I would expect they might be into that flow state. But we might have to go a bit more into differentiating flow state as a state that's been used more often by psychologists, but more recently, researchers have proposed another state called clutch state, and that might be something a bit more keen to that determined look that you're seeing right now. So somebody's trying really hard on that climb. So flow is this state that you get into, you're letting it happen, and as you say, you get energized, and you kind of, people tend to have like a really positive experience having been in flow. Can you explain that subtle difference between flow and clutch then? Yeah, so there's different ways that we can differentiate it. Um, one way that climbers and other adventure participants that I interviewed talked about it is describing flow as a type 1 type of fun and clutch as a type 2 type of fun. So that type 1 is... I get that. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful. So it's all about that playful, exploratory mindset. You're having fun with it. You're enjoying that movement. You're enjoying the feel, the hold under your hands. Uh, it's really a captivating emotionally satisfying as it's happening type of mindset. But clutch instead could be something that's akin to a type two sort of fun. So it's a lot more determined. It might be a lot more hard or challenging or appraised as something that's psychologically uh, involving pressure. So there's a lot of 
pressure on you to compete or pressure on you to accomplish something, pressure on you maybe to manage some sort of risk. So climbers navigating a difficult piece of terrain and knowing that if they fall, they're five meters higher up than their last protection and they might get injured. So they need to realize that this risk is there, but then they need to commit to that challenge. They need to realize I can do this and then proceed to the next point where they can put their next protection. So that's a bit of the summary of what the difference between flow state and clutch state is. And this is what you wanted to explore in your PhD mm -hmm. by talking to climbers. And as you said, just after they've finished their climb. Exactly, yeah. So the, the issue was there to try to minimize memory recall issues. If I had them to talk to me about what they had just experienced, then I wasn't talking to them while they were having the experience. That would probably disrupt them from that flow state or clutch state that they experienced. But I was wanting to get as close as possible to the time that they experienced that state. So I spent entire days with climbers out on the climbing walls with them. Not actually on the climbing wall, but at the base of climbing walls, ready to interview them after they had completed a questionnaire that was really high on that, the reporting of a lower clutch state. So after this first phase with elite rock climbers, Patrick drew up a model that outlined the similarities and differences between flow and clutch states, based on what he'd learned from these climbers. And then he tested this model further. So my second phase was trying to see if this model applied to more general adventure sports. So not just rock climbers, not just elite rock climbers, but instead people that surf, people that mountain bike, people that mountaineer, people that base jump, so that's jumping or similar to skydiving, but jumping off of cliffs or bridges. So all these different activities, I figured might generate also flow and clutch state. And it brings me back to one of the questions we talked about earlier, which was that flow and clutch uh, might be useful specifically in adventure sports because it's reported as something that's really important for people that do adventure sports. So it's, it's a great motivation to do that uh, type of activity, whether it's mountain biking or surfing, wanting to get into that present moment where nothing else is important. Uh, so that's uh, definitely an uh, aspect that's important about, about flow and clutch people are motivated to do these sports because they can get in the zone mm -hmm. and yeah. they really enjoy that flow and clutch state. Is that what you mean? Exactly. And so what was your findings from that phase of the research? So I'm still in the preliminary stage of my analysis, but it's definitely seeming to replicate similar things that, of what I saw in my first study. One of the things I found out was that there are certain antecedents, so certain things that come before flow and clutch. And some of these are different between flow and clutch. So when we're trying to get into a flow state, participants sometimes reported more of a mindful state. So they're concentrating a lot on their breath, using deep and slow breaths to be able to get into a mindful zone. So being present in the moment, they might think about how the hold's going to feel under their hands. They might think about the types of position they're going to be in in certain parts of the wall. So they'll visualize the wall beforehand and they can be in that present moment of I'm here, I'm climbing right now. And clutch state be more about the appraisal that's going to be really important. So appraising something not as a difficult obstacle, but instead as a challenge to be overcome. So if you fall once after lead climbing, you might tell yourself, this is a fun opportunity. I get to challenge myself. I get to see a really hard climbing now. I get to be able to be a part of the solution and finding this challenge enjoyable.
Now, Patrick hasn't studied these states in terms of elite athletes at competition. But the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, as well as being the first time that surfing and skateboarding make an appearance, are also the Olympic debut for indoor rock climbing. He explained to me that it involves three components that each athlete has to do. There's bouldering, there's lead climbing and speed climbing. Kind of like the individual gymnastics, you do all three types of climbing and your performances are combined to work out who wins. Of course, what Patrick is really interested in is what psychological state these rock climbers might be in. What's going to be interesting, because this is the first time that the Olympics are featuring climbing, lots of these climbers are excellent climbers in the outdoor climbing area. But it's going to be, for some of them, not something they've experienced very often, that additional pressure. They don't necessarily have experience with that huge international stage of what is the Olympics. So there might be some psychological pressure there that some might, instead of entering the clutch state, might enter what something is called the choke. So that's something that's used in sport, traditional sports psychology, and it's all about that skill that you're usually able to perform really well, suddenly you can't do it because you're under that psychological pressure. So I'm really interested to see if, if climbers like Adam Anja, who are excellent climbers on outdoor climbs and have done some of the highest rated climbs in the world, they might not be able to perform as well as they normally can when they're under that pressure of the Olympics. I'm aware of the choke. I think I've been in that state. <laughs> I think we all have at some point. Just like you don't have to be an Olympic rock climber to experience choke, you also don't have to be a skydiver to experience flow. So you certainly might have experienced something like this. If you've been working really well, um, you were maybe writing up a poem or, or some sort of story, and you enter that flow state where suddenly you're being really creative and it's all flowing, it's almost automatic, and it feels somewhat effortless. So that's essentially what's happening when you're climbing in that flow state. The, the problem solving is happening automatically and you're using more of a procedural memory instead of a working memory. So you're not having to consciously think about what you're doing. It's just happening by itself because you have so much practice and knowledge about what you're doing. So you can experience flow writing a poem or playing chess or playing guitar or even at work, Patrick says, if you hit that balance between challenge and skill level. He tells me that businesses and computer game developers are actually really interested in flow research because it is such an enjoyable, rewarding state to be in. Companies want to harness it so that they can create conditions that employees or customers experience this state so that they keep coming back for more. Patrick would like to continue researching into these optimal states, but with a different purpose in mind. Well, I'm interested in a lot of things. Um, research kind of opens doors to new things all the time. Um, I, I'm really interested in, in looking at motivation more. So seeing how getting to those flow state and clutch states lead people to be motivated to the activities more so. And I'm specifically looking forward to knowing how people can get more active by getting to these flow states or clutch states. So people that aren't necessarily enjoying exercise or not enjoying being physically active and getting them to understand that physical activity can be really enjoyable and something that's motivating for its own sake. That's really something that I think flow or clutch states can bring to that whole research avenue. Patrick shared some of his own experiences with me. Like 
a flow state sunset skydive where time seemed to slow down and all his movements felt like dancing in the air. And a clutch state during rock climbing, which was prompted by a sudden downpour and a decision to push through despite the tricky conditions. But he also uses what he has experienced and what he's learned from his research in his everyday life. Something we could all consider doing. In climbing, sometimes you'll come about with an unknown problem, an unknown route that you are a bit scared or anxious about. But then, because you know that you're the one that chose to do this, you put yourself into an adventurous situation, then you can embrace that unknown and try to enjoy it as an exploration. So you're seeing whether you can do well on it. So having more of an adventure mindset in any day troubles might be something that, that can be beneficial. I, I know that I often use that if I'm struggling on something and see, can I do something about it? Can I explore what I can do with this? Thanks to Patrick Boudreau and the team at Resistance Climbing Gym. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by Alex Harmer and Phil Bench. Tim Watkin is the executive producer. If you want to get in the hour-changing world flow, you should follow the show. You can do this on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. And if you follow on Apple and are enjoying the show, please rate and review it because it helps other people to find it. If you aren't on Apple, you know what works just as well? Tell your friends and family about the show. You can check out our website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Every week we put up photos and links so you can get to know a bit more about the topic. Also, you can connect with us on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. One last thing. Last week saw the announcement of the New York Radio Award finalists. And guess what? There are four amazing RNZ podcasts amongst them. The Service, The Unthinkable, Black Sheep, and our changing world legend Alison Balance's Voices from Antarctica series. If you haven't already checked these out, now is the time to do so. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon, and I'll be back next week. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.